0: Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby, Boo Barney and Bradley.
1: Don't forget to goat leggings! Well, parmé
0: all over the place. Get the money, and I need to get the woman. Get There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket?
2: There was an earthquake here that happened last week. I, I would like to stress earthquakes don't happen here all that often, and I know Candace is probably. Looking at me like, oh, you're a little baby. But because we're in the middle of the plate, yeah, earthquakes don't generally happen here. And I was in the middle of a Zoom call with my coworker, and it was the strangest situation I've ever found myself in. Just both of us just like, okay, what's happening? And then looking at each other over the computer, because I said, Oh, I'm sorry, I my house is shaking. And then like a second later, She's like, wait, mine is too. It was very like record scratch, but you didn't think this would happen to me kind of situation.
0: Well, it, they never stop being shocking because there's no, um, there's no prelude. You know, it's not like a hurricane where you see it coming. Japan has their mm. early warning system, but by early warning, I think it's like 30 seconds or something. So and we haven't implemented anything like that here.
2: Uh, for oh, it's whatever reason.
0: laissez attitude. It's more just like, if it comes, it comes. Yeah, if I fall through an overpass, I fall through an overpass. It's just whatever, <laughs> you know.
1: I have never experienced an earthquake in my life.
2: You don't need an earthquake to be unsteady on your feet. Thank so. you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's hey, you set point. yourself up for that one. <laughs> well, yeah, it is, it is the key reason why I could never live in New Zealand. I have been considering it, considering the state of this country, but... Man, the big one is gonna hit, and just kill everyone. So I, I just don't.
0: You just gotta not think about it, you know. <laughs> you just and well, the other thing too about faults is that they don't know an earthquake fault exists until it. I, I took a geology class. I don't. I don't remember the term, but until it effectively yeah, erupts. With, um... <laughs> you took a Paul Giamatti. I took a Paul San Giamatti Andreas. in San Andreas. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, like the Northridge Fault, which was responsible for our big earthquake in 1994 that, um, like, leveled a lot of um, where I live, um, they didn't know the Northridge Fault existed until that moment when it split and half the valley flattened like a pancake. So
2: They were saying that this kind of quake is an intraplate quake. And it's, like, just the pressure from the plates moving moving around the fault lines, which not near us, uh, building up beneath the plate, and then it has to escape somehow, and that's, that's what happened.
0: I did not do well enough in geology class to confirm, nor deny, that information. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair,
2: a meteorologist was saying this on the news. I'm like, I don't think this is your area of expertise.
0: No, I, no. It's like in Dante's – uh, we're talking about Dante's Peak. Um, great movie. Great movie. <laughs> but um, I, I'm always, I always find it funny how there's like never anyone in – how often do you meet an earthquake specialist in real life? A seismologist. A, a seismologist. <laughs> that's the word. In, in real life. You know, how often do you run into one? But it seems like you can't swing a fucking cat in Hollywood that's hitting <laughs> someone who's an expert on a natural disaster. It's like, why don't you people work for FEMA? And then maybe next time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> why are you all no working? money in it. That's fucking why. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, yeah. And also, they all look like Gerard Butler and shit. Yeah, whatever. I'm supposed to be a bunch of pasty nerds sitting in a basement somewhere at Caltech. Anx and My love has lasted longer than the
2: temples of our gods. No man ever suffered as I did for you.
0: But the rest you may not know. Not until you are about to pass through the great night of terror and triumph. Until you are ready to face moments of horror for an eternity of love. Until I send back your spirit that has wandered through so many forms and so many ages. But before then, Bast must again send forth death. Death to that boy for whom love is creeping into your heart. Love that would keep you from myself. Love that might bring sickness and even death to you. Awake.
2: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. Back for another week of spooky terror. Uh, I'm Amelia, and uh, as always, I'm joined by Tiff. Hello. And Candace. Hi. And today... I am I guess continuing on a theme <laughs> by covering 1932's The Mummy. So last episode Tiff started out with a baby. Uh I'm I'm also going to start out with a child. Uh except as usual, I will add a twist to it that will make it horrible for all of us. <laughs> um because it's a dead child. Oh. Oh cool. So <laughs> Um, on the 16th of February, 1923, the seal of a tomb, <laughs> undisturbed for centuries, was broken. It
0: was not the dead child I was anticipating. but
2: <laughs> Well, it's the catalyst for this one. Um, so this single action was the result of 20 years of archaeological research uh, and work within the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, and it was one of the most significant finds of the 20th century. The archaeologist Howard Carter had rediscovered the tomb of the boy king Tutankhamun.
0: I'd like to talk seriously just for a moment. One of the great art exhibits ever to tour the United States is the Treasures of Tutankhamun, or King Tut. But I think it's a national disgrace, the way we have commercialized it, with trinkets and toys, t-shirts and posters. And about three months ago, I was up in the woods and I wrote a song. I tried to use the ancient modalities and melodies. I would like to do it for you right now. Maybe we can all learn something from this. King Tut. King Tut. Now when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see. People stand in line to see the boy King. so funky funky. did you do the funky
2: and what he discovered in finding his tomb was one of the most intact tombs to have been found up until that point filled with treasures unseen for thousands of years The discovery captured the world by storm and reignited an interest in Egyptology that had laid dormant across the border public for quite some time. But for all the glitz and glamour of the long-lost treasures, murmurs also circulated of a curse, mostly spurred on by the news media at the time. The curse of the pharaohs was said to kill anyone who disturbed the tomb of an ancient Egyptian. Rumours of curses have been around since the 7th century, current era, but they really took hold after the discovery of King Tut. There are several reasons for this, but most likely is the fact that after the discovery, the press descended on the Valley of the Kings en masse, and in the hopes of stopping the journalists disturbing the tomb, Lord Carnarvon, or Carnarvon, whatever. I don't need to say his name right. He's English. Um, A key benefactor of the archaeological activity in the area assigned um, only the Times of London with which to disseminate information. That left the rest of the journalists at a bit of a loose end, sort of kicking the can to one another, being like, well, what possibly could we do in Egypt in 1923? So what happened was that Marie Corelli or other sources say Jessica Amanda Salmonson would write to the New York Times claiming that she had translated Arabic text that promised death comes on wings to he who enters the tomb of a Pharaoh. This really sparked something within the idol press It was really spurred on by the death of Lord Canavan two months after the tomb was open. So he died of complications from pneumonia and he had been sick before they found the tomb, but really after his death the the press was like, well, there must be a curse. So when the news reached England, the Times were interviewing Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which is not a name I expected to bring up in this episode, who despite having created one of the most analytical and logical detectives that's like i said that all with air quotes he was quite the believer in sort of mystical esoteric bullshit and he said that the death was probably caused by the elementals created by ancient priests to guard the tomb so this is again more bullshit, but the
0: press ate it up. (laughs) Wasn't he uh, fooled by some teenagers with some fake fairy photographs? Yeah, I don't know whether that was –
2: was that Conan Doyle? I think it was. That was a lot of them. Yeah. Now now the stories of the curses – the curse sort of ran wild, though um, I think it's 42 people present at the opening of the tomb. Only six
0: died within 10 years,
2: but that really – I mean – you're gonna mess up a good story with the truth. I don't think so.
0: I would say by and by uh, standards of you know mortality at that point in time, I think that's a pretty good. I think that's a pretty good ratio. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a curse. Okay, no, but I, I mean, I, but I, no. I was just to say. I mean, compared to the general population, I think you could find any group of forty-two people and there'd be six dead. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So it's like exactly. Yeah, yeah. What
1: were you say, Todd? No, I was just gonna say. You know, I think you'll find that they're all dead now. So explain that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can't. You're yeah, you can't. <laughs> um, But it was this frenzied, if somewhat colonial, and imperialist interest in Egypt and its ancient treasures that ultimately led to the creation of today's film, Carl Froon's 1932 universal horror, The Mummy. So, since the inception of film, mummies have been a feature, but it wasn't until um, our film today that the concept of movie mummies and their curses really took shape. Inspired by the opening of the tomb and the alleged curse, producer Carl Lemly Jr., at Universal, uh, commissioned Richard Shea to find a novel about Egypt in the same style as Dracula and Frankenstein. Shea was unlucky, however, as none such existed. There was, of course, some mythology about reanimated mummies, but this was a relatively new idea that began in the 19th century. The ancient Egyptians certainly did not believe in the possibility of reanimation um, as mummified bodies were to be used in the afterlife, and not reused in the mortal life of the 19th century novels about reanimated mummies that did exist uh, many of them feature electrocution being the primary engine of reanimation so it's something that we see used in frankenstein the film version unlike the chemical reanimation that stipulated in shelley's original novel And it's throughout this 19th century lore we can see bits and pieces of what would eventually be put into use for the mummy as we know it today. The reanimation, the love across ages, and the punishment for desecration of tombs all would be present in those early works. Uh, Notably, Richard Marsh's 1897 novel The Beetle features a supernatural being using hypnotic powers to stalk a British politician who opened a sacred tomb. And also Arthur Conan Doyle himself would make some contributions to the mummy law with the Ring of Thoth and lot number 249, both published in the 1890s. In the first, we see the key plot element of a seemingly immortal being uh, with love spanning centuries and the desire to reanimate the mummy of a long-lost partner. In the second, we see the idea of an avenging mummy and the use of an ancient scroll or text used to reanimate the corpse. While we can't know exactly how influential any of these stories were on what would become the mummy script – Given the similarities and the popularity of Conan Doyle at the time, I think it's safe to say that there has been some influence, even if it just served to bolster the foundational mummy movie lore than anything else. Uh, It can also be said that throughout all of these stories and novels, the ideas would eventually make their way onto the big screen in some way or another. Um, It's hard to say exactly how much, but considering there's no single telling or interpretation um, of a foundational text unlike the other Universal horrors we can never really really know. So what was poor Carl Limley Jr. to do when Richard Shea reported back to him that there was no book about mummies that they could use? Well he was just going to have one written of course he was going to use the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb an alleged curse as a jumping off point because shrewdly he'd noted that this story was in the public domain so he wouldn't have to pay for it. <laughs> uh, he assigned the novelist Nina Wilcox Putnam, who is quite an interesting character in and of herself, um, and Shea to come up with a story that might suit. What they put together was a treatment tiled Cagliostro about an ancient Egyptian who kept himself alive using various nitrates, and takes his event a uh, revenge against women who look like his unfaithful lover. This was clearly partly inspired by the real Cagliostro, an Italian from the 1700s who passed himself off as a hypnotist and alchemist. Lemley was taken with the story so much so that he announced the film would be Boris Karloff's next appearance. Um, He handed the script off to John L. Balderston, an accomplished journalist, playwright, and screenwriter whose adaptations of Dracula and Frankenstein had served as the basis for Universal's respective films to sort of give it a tune-up and turn it into a script. John L. Baldurston also had a critical understanding of the subject, so he was one of the journalists present at the opening of King Tut's tomb uh, and was the chief correspondent of the New York world assigned to report on the discovery. When he began working on the script, he would make several crucial changes to the story, replacing the use of nitrates to keep the mummy alive with the reading of an ancient text and moving the setting from San Francisco to Cairo. San Francisco. Um, (laughs) San Francisco is quite the leap he was going to be using his more accurate and immersive knowledge of Egypt and mythology to build up the mythology surrounding the scroll as well as uh, renaming the characters more authentic Egyptian
1: names. I got to tell you, I kind of want to see this in its original form because it sounds
2: (laughs) batshit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, why why they would call it Cagliostro and be like, yep, Egypt in San Francisco. Yep, (laughs) that makes sense. So, Baldiston used his experience writing Dracula and Frankenstein to inform his final script, as well as the considerable influence of Lemley and his desire to use Karloff for the part. So this is echoed in the final version of the script and its character list. Baldiston's Karloff character is far more sympathetic than his previous roles, barring perhaps Frankenstein motivated by love and killing mostly out of necessity to bring his long lost love back to life. So what exactly were we left with in terms of the final screenplay? Well, what we see is kind of what we get. So in terms of the plot itself, it begins in 1921. Joseph Wimple, who is Arthur Byron, finds the mummy of an ancient Egyptian high priest named Imhotep and they dig him up open like just crack him open in the egyptian heat uh, without any kind of i don't know process which we learn all about in the charlton heston movie the awakening
0: (laughs) through the ages the ancient monuments of egypt have been hunting grounds for archaeologists tourists and grave robbers one by one the sacred tombs of pharaohs and queens have been violated yielding their priceless treasures and occult mysteries But the evil one, Kara, has slept undisturbed for thousands of years, waiting, waiting
2: for the awakening.
0: Charlton Heston, obsessed by the awakening, intrudes where no man should go. I'm frightened. Susanna York disobeys the ancient warning that threatens to destroy her.
2: You're going to try the ritual, aren't you? And they've got their fucking hands all over him, like just full on touching this mummy. No um, regard for what the room temperature or what the oil in their hands would do to this ancient, you know, mummy. Yeah, they might as well be like licking his face at this point. They may as well just like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess they had some different ideas about what archaeologists do. But they bring him up and they note that he was not mummified in the way of a traditional mummy, that he had been buried alive, and that the sacred markings on his uh, sarcophagus had been removed. So he was cursed. The viscera were not removed. The usual
0: scar made by the embalmer's knife is not there. I guessed as much, Miller. I had a good
2: look at him when I photographed him. Never saw a mummy like that.
0: Neither I imagine as anyone else.
2: Looks as though he died in some sensationally unpleasant manner.
0: The contorted muscles show that he struggled in the bandages.
2: Buried alive.
1: Imhotep, high priest of the temple of the summit Karnak. Poor old fellow. Now, what could you have done to make him
0: treat you like that? An execution for treason, I suppose. Sacrilege, more likely. Look. The sacred spells which protect the soul in its journey to the underworld... ...have been chipped off of the coffin.
2: So Imhukteh was sentenced to death not only in this world, but in the next. Uh, Maybe he got too gay with the vestal virgins in the temple. So, so Wemple's assistant, Ralph Norton, who is Brownwell Fletcher, starts reading from this scroll. Even after the other guy, uh, Dr. Muller, um, warns him not to. He's like, don't read from it. It's only going to bring bad things. Uh, but Bramwell Fletcher's like, I'm going to do it anyway. And Tiff said yesterday when we were watching it that Bramwell Fletcher looks
1: like a dollar store Leslie Howard. I said he's... He's the Leslie Howard your mom says you have at home when you say you want to get some Leslie Howard in the.
0: <laughs> There's also a little bit of Ferris Bueller fourth wall breaking here mm-hmm. when Bramwell Fetcher, Fletcher, whatever the fuck his name is, when 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 knock off Leslie Howard, uh, Soviet black market Leslie Howard, when he's talking, <laughs> he's talking, he's speaking directly into the camera. As he's supposed to be um, talking across the desk, and it's it's funny because it's not used anywhere else in the film. They never you think it's going to be like a, a motif, and then it just never shows up ever again.
2: No, it's like the first of a couple of things that you think are going to be like
0: things
2: in the movie that just that aren't because there. <laughs> because I
0: think it also goes back to showing we're going to talk about this later obviously but um, that fern is, is Carl friend who is directing the movie is primarily a cinematographer and is coming at it from the perspective of a cinematographer so sometimes there are these really beautiful arresting images and then the rest of the movie is shot in a very stagey early talky fashion and yeah. then there will be this beautiful poetic yeah James Whale kind of yeah thing going on
2: but this this part of the movie is a really interesting artifact I guess pacing wise for this early subset of horror in that you know Bramwell Fletcher he starts reading from the scroll and then we see the mummy start to reanimate as he's reading so it's just it's quite slow uh, and then it builds to this fever pitch where we see the mummy's hand on the scroll and then Bramwell Fletcher sees the mummy's hand on the scroll and just begins laughing maniacally. What's the matter, (laughs) mate? For heaven's sakes, what is it? He
1: he went for a little walk.
2: You should have seen his face. (laughs) And he turns around and then what we see is just the bandages leaving the room and Grandma Fletcher's character is just I don't know. He's just laughing the whole time saying, oh, he just got up and walked out. Um, when the other guys come back and are like, hey, where's the where's the dude, the dead dude? And then it skips forward 10 years um, and apparently the guy just went crazy and laughed himself to death, which I don't know. Can that happen?
1: Perhaps. Wasn't there some like Greek philosopher or something who saw his donkey get drunk and laughed himself to death?
0: Did I make that up? Yes. No, that's I don't I don't know who, but I I know I've heard that.
2: That's how I'm yeah, going to go. Lots, lots of Greek Greeks died in ridiculous ways, though. Like, didn't Aesop wasn't he like killed by a bird dropping a turtle on his head because they thought it was a rock? <laughs> yeah, right. I think you're correct. Let's I... hope I am, or else we'll get some very angry <laughs> emails from all the ancient Greeks that listen to this
0: podcast. <laughs>
2: anyway, so ten years later, apparently uh, the mummy Imhotep. It's just been chilling.
0: Can I I'm, stuff, so, I'm but... sorry. I'm sorry. Can I interrupt real fast? Can you guys go to the Wikipedia page for Aesop and look at the picture, please? <laughs> okay.
2: Why does he not have a neck? <laughs> his little arms. Maybe that's like
0: it like the the turtle like just knocked him into well, his Well, apparently <laughs> I don't I don't think the turtle I don't think the turtle was him. The turtle was Okay, uh killed by turtle. Killed by turtle. <laughs> Uh, that was, that was, um, Achilles Escal... Yeah. Escalus. Okay, yeah. Aesop, Escalus, same, same, same shit.
2: Same diff. Aesop dead looks
1: dead like pedophile. he's shrugging, like he's like... <laughs> he's he's like, a I little don't
2: embarrassed. <laughs> Why me worry? <laughs> <laughs> I guess he doesn't. He doesn't need to worry about turtles. He doesn't need to worry about <laughs> anything.
0: I like the fact that it says that he's traditionally depicted as being very ugly, which is relatable. <laughs>
2: Um, anyway, yeah, cut forward 10 years. The mummy Imhotep has just been, I don't know, chilling, going on whole, like Hawaiian vacations. Um, I don't know, doing stuff for 10 years. But he reappears as the mysterious historian called Ardeth Bay, and he calls upon Sir Joseph's son Frank, who is David Manners, in the most perfectly pressed pants in Egypt. I can't get over it. Always like, Who is in Egypt with him? Just pressing his pants for him.
1: I do prefer this look to Charlton Heston's look in The Awakening, which was problematic with the shorts and the... Uh...
0: The shorts were bad. Yeah.
2: They were extremely I didn't like bad.
0: Those. I haven't seen The Awakening. How is Charlton Heston dressed when he's excavating in Egypt or whatever? It's
2: like a safari suit, but he's got the shorts with the long socks. His look going on. He kind of looks like the dad from Wild Thornberrys. Yeah, that was the comparison you made, and that was right. Yeah. That's a good look
0: for him. It's a little bit of a romper situation going on. Like, it's like a little little safari look, boiler that, suit.
2: That movie suit. Um, lent into some incest stuff that <laughs> Tiff and I were not anticipating. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> it was very weird. Is it a Charlton um, Heston movie, though, without something happening that you just absolutely don't expect? Like, doesn't he get washed away and die in Earthquake? It's always a twist. Always a twist with old Chuck. And sometimes That's the twist true. is becoming a In Soylent Green, I wasn't expecting that um,
2: Edward G. Robinson scene in the middle where he dies.
0: <laughs> I wasn't expecting that Soylent Green was people. Um, that, was <laughs> that was a twist. That what got me.
2: <laughs> I think Edward G. Robinson should have eaten Charlton Hesley, <laughs> is how I think Soylent Green should have gone.
1: Why does Ross, the largest friend, not simply eat the other five?
2: Anyway, back to David Manners. Uh, and he's with some professor. And Imhotep, or Ardeth Bey, shows them where to dig in order to find the tomb of a long-lost princess, Moon. And so they they dig her up and they're like, wow, how did he know how to dig here? Doesn't matter. Let's take these to the museum. Um, don't really question any of that, even after Ardeth Bay just disappears. They're just like,
0: well, win for us. Have we mentioned that Ardeth Bay is Karloff? I don't have a a short-term memory. Okay.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, Ardeth Bay is Karloff, which, I mean, if you see him come in, there's no point in history where Karloff looked normal. Like, you'd always question a person who looked like Boris Karloff, and that's, like, not a judgment against Karloff. I'm a big Karloff fan, but, like, he had quite the look. And in this, he looks like um, he's been dried in the sun
0: for 20 years. Well, you know, having having grown up in the desert, he looks like a lot of people I've seen in the desert, you know. <laughs> he's got on a caftan, and he's very dry. <laughs> he's he's a little wrinkled. He's uh, parched. Yeah. He's parched, yeah. Um,
2: I, when I first, when no, when we were watching it yesterday, I was like, man... Karloff's wearing a very low-cut top. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't realize he had, you know, the little mock neck beneath it. And I was like, are we going to have, like, a, a nip slip? What's the go? Yeah, um,
0: he, he's got, like, a mock neck, like, undershirt, and then he's got over it, um, I'm sure what is... Like a like, tunic. Yeah, a tunic, I'm sure it's, like, a classic, like, Hollywood costume department, like, butchering yeah. of some sort of, like, ethnic dress. And then he just, he kind of looks like, um he looks like an older woman in... In like Santa Fe, you know what I mean? Who's like retired to do pottery. Yeah. (laughs) Effectively is what he looks like. He looks like a. And he has a fez on too. Yeah, he looks like a Um, boomer. But
2: I mean, like he's having fun with it, obviously. (laughs) But yeah, he just disappears. Um, They, the others don't question this. Meanwhile, we cut to uh, this woman named Helen, uh, who is allegedly half Egyptian, bearing a striking resemblance to the long lost princess even though there's no way we could know that but Ardeth Bay he approaches her after David Manners has already sort of like sidled up to her and been like hey I think you're pretty cute and um she like falls into this trance as uh, I don't know what to call him I'm gonna just call him the mummy from now on so Karloff character the mummy (laughs) um he's like in the Cairo museum stealing the corpse or I don't know, doing some business. He kills a museum guard and Helen falls into this trance where she just leaves this party, gets in a cab, and goes to the Cairo Museum before she's found again. Where do you want to go, Miss? Le Musée
0: des Antiquités. In photo,
2: essentially ardeth bay believes that helen is his long-lost love's reincarnation and he shows her this in his special like pool which looks like a 50s television (laughs) and they show this like footage of like their history together which is shot like it's a silent film to make it look old obviously even though that would have only been 10 years ago in 1932
0: and she's got it's it's got a very much that, that like 1910s like almost like a with like art nouveau like orientalist hmm. approach to it and she has very much like a like a theta thing going on yeah it's interesting and
2: um and he like shows her what happened why how she died she was like the pharaoh's something and she died and he tried to resurrect her and then he was caught and cursed and buried alive uh and so it's his plan to kill her in order to resurrect the soul of his long-lost love however the the statue of what is allegedly isis strikes him down at the like climax of the movie and he just sort of crumbles into dust (laughs) which is a great scene just sort of yeah like he's a dry biscuit and then he turns into a skeleton and then everything's fine david manners ends up with zita johan and it's fine the end it really ends quite abruptly but i mean that's just universal helen helen come back it's frank come back There's not a whole lot in there. It's mostly just Karloff menacing. He does kill David Manor's dad, like, with potions from afar, because he won't give him back the scroll. But, like,
0: mostly it's just him being menacing. Yeah, the movie's mostly a vibe. Yeah. Like a, like a lot of horror movies of the 1930s, you know? It's it's certainly not... It's no Bride of Frankenstein. There's not a lot going on here, intellectually.
2: <laughs> I mean, the, the most vibe thing of the movie is definitely the shot of Karloff... Like, and his Maybelline lashes looking dead into the camera. The close-ups are so good. It's like, it's such an effective shot. It's like, man, if the whole movie was just that shot, it would be great. Well, that's what um,
0: I, I feel like there are these moments where it feels like um, a number of superior universal horrors where there are those moments where that, like visually, like that is a moment that really is reminiscent of something like Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein. And then the rest of it is just like, oh, woo, Zooey Mama, this could be a Ruth Chatterton movie called like the duchess regrets so
2: in terms of making this movie as usual in 1932 universal had money problems it was almost always in some kind of financial uh difficulty at this point in time this was partly due to the depression uh but it was also because lemley the elder had imported shiploads of relatives and friends from germany and employed them in dozens of diverse positions (laughs) So uh, the Elder had just brought all his friends over and been like, hey, run a movie studio with me, and uh, they did not know how to do that. Um, So while it did not have any money, it did have a reputation for producing good horror films or thrillers, as they were known at the time, notably of their silent thrillers, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Cat and the Canary, and The Phantom of the Opera would be their key ones at this point in time, aside from Dracula and Frankenstein. So Dracula was a great commercial success, despite Lemley the Elder's reservations. However, the financial success uh, was not enough to solve uh, Universal's financial woes. Um, so they quickly turned to looking for the next thing they could capitalize on, writing uh, off the success of Dracula. This didn't immediately culminate in direct sequels, uh, but rather the development of a formula. So this formula led to Frankenstein and ultimately The Mummy. While the stories do differ, there are certain themes and ideas that are replicated across each of them that we can recognise as being quite similar. In terms of finding a director for this formula movie, Universal weren't exactly lacking in prime horror talent, with Todd Browning and James Whale on the payroll. However, Universal being Universal, uh, Lemley went instead with an unlikely choice. He owed a favour to Carl, inverted commas, Papa Froon, <laughs> um, an established cinematographer who wanted to become a director. So in 1930, Froon had saved the ending of Lewis Milestones, All Quiet on the Western Front, by suggesting the momentary destruction of a butterfly to end the hero's life. So it was, you know, quite a poignant and much lauded ending to the film. Freund was also an innovator of the medium, considered the inventor of the unchained camera, wherein it's taken off the tripod and moved around in different ways, which were common in cinema that we see today, but was quite innovative when he started doing it. He would strap cameras to himself, to moving rigs and to cranes to get his shots. And we do see this in The Mummy. There are quite a few shots where the camera moves in and pulls out and moves around They're not quite as polished as they would be in future. Uh, Some of them are quite jarring, but in the greater context of films at the time, it would have been quite innovative to see that. And as I said, he was a cinematographer. Um, He worked on Fritz Lang's iconic Metropolis and also the film The Golem. Freund, to his credit, promised that he'd bring the same innovation he brought to cinematography to his direction. And he was also the key cinematographer for Dracula in 1931. Lemley sort of painted into a corner here owing the guy a favor was like okay and took the gamble for Universal putting him in charge he it it wasn't exactly his first time directing it was his first time directing in America he had directed a a German film called The Sensational Trial in 1923 um but that's really not enough (laughs) Uh, of a confidence booster when you're Carl Lemley Jr. So they put him in charge of this film and said, cool, uh, it's due in three weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Carl Fren was like, hey, no problem. So he was assigned it on Saturday, uh, cast the film by Sunday, and had started shooting on Monday. So just boom, boom, boom. Got it happening. Got a fucking blast. Yeah, but his inexperience in directing did mean that he did not deviate much from the script at all. Uh So the script already contained a lot of the cues for the camera movements and a lot of just the stage directions. So he just like stuck to that thing, which I mean, fair enough. If it's your first Hollywood film, you'd be like, oh, surely these guys know what they're doing. I should just follow this. <laughs> so The Mummy was the first Universal's horror to have a musical score, which the uh, was the idea of Frund himself. Uh, James Dietrich would create a score under Freund's precise instructions, and although it's only 20 minutes long in its entirety, it would be used. Freund was not happy with the final results, uh, and would intersplice it with stock scores from previous films and also riffs from Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. So that's the film, that's the music that opens the film. It's also uh, what's used in, I believe it's Dracula yeah credits
1: yeah i was gonna say that's always kind of disorienting that explains
2: um, yeah. it a bit but yeah and i think also they just love those properties that they don't have to pay yeah. for <laughs> uh in other ways uh this film was also quite innovative uh in the fact that it was one of the first to use a lot of back projection so this is something i talked about last time in king kong it's the process of shooting uh, at a separate location and then projecting that footage onto a big screen and have the live actors act in front of it so for this film uh, they sent a B team off to Cairo to film um, as much as they could and then brought it back to have their actors here instead of taking them all the way out to Egypt. But this process did require very specific lighting set in, settings in order to match the footage with the live action. Freund was very careful in his use of lighting, lighting uh, working closely with the cameraman, Charles Stumer. Fruind would create an eerie and enchanted look in some parts, often sacrificing pace to build atmosphere and a sense of dread. Uh, This sacrificing of the pacing did lead to some tension on set, as it would, uh, particularly when it came to the opening scene. Karloff would tell British film producer Richard Gordon that Carl Jr. and Freund were (laughs) at odds over it. Uh, Gordon recounted, Karloff told me that Lemley Jr. and director Carl Freund almost came to blows over the opening sem- sequence. Lemley wanted the mummy to come to life and be introduced in a series of stylized close-ups like those that James Whale used in Frankenstein. Freen insisted that the mummy should not be shown at all after its first stirrings of life in the sarcophagus and that audience would be far more horrified by the spectre of Fletcher's descent into badness if they didn't see what drove him to it. Fortunately, Freen prevailed and the sequence is one of the most revered in Universal's horror classics.
0: That's a, that's a recurring theme where a director has to fight the studio when it comes to not revealing... The monster, you know? It's the same thing that happened on uh Night of the Demon. Hmm.
2: I think it happens with so many horror films where the, the execs are just like, I mean, what are they paying for if they're not gonna see it? Uh, which is a really stupid. <laughs> Sam Goldwyn, to- <laughs> I'm not paying
0: as Sam Goldwyn said, I'm not paying <laughs> see the back of Merle Obron's me head.
2: Ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Unless it's got that Jimmy Cagney dump truck, <laughs> I don't wanna see it. Jimmy Cagney or Franco Tone. Very true. Can you Imagine Jimmy Cagney as a mummy. <laughs> <laughs> when they, how would they get him in the
2: sarcophagus? They don't wouldn't know which way to. <laughs> he's
1: he's kind of got a mummy vibe at the end of a uh, Public Enemy
0: there. True. That is an excellent point. Yes, that is true.
2: I'm just trying to picture like how they would do his little hair on the sarcophagus, like his little death mask. <laughs> So, in many ways, Froond is the opposite of James Whale, I think it's safe to say, preferring to be quite succinct and to the point in his direction, uh, offering no room for exploration of character eccentricities that we might see in something like Frankenstein. Uh, The film is also bereft of any brevity with no comic relief in sight. Um, I mean, probably yes, at the time. I think now a lot of David Manners fawning. Let me put this here. It'll be more comfortable. Thanks. You really want to know why I didn't take you to the hospital? Because when I held you in my arms...
0: Hadn't you better not commit yourself? What girl could fail to make a conquest who collapsed at a man's feet in the moonlight? Oh, I know it seems absurd when we've known each other such a short time. But I'm serious.
2: Don't you think I've had enough excitement for one evening without the additional thrill of a strange man making love to me? But I've never been serious about this sort of thing before. <laughs> now look here you can tell me to go to the devil you can't laugh at me i said this to tiff yesterday It was fucking intolerable i
0: can't deal with it well if it's any consolation i don't think he probably enjoyed it that much either
2: no i don't think he did um and now we get into quite literally the nitty-gritty uh due to the complexity and grueling nature of karloff's mummy makeup so this is what he's wearing in that first scene. All of the scenes of him in the full getup uh, was shot in one go. Uh, Universal makeup artist Jack Pierce began work at 11am on the day of shooting, covering Karloff's face in layers of cotton, held in place with spirit gum, which apparently was quite foul-smelling. After two hours, Pierce applied clay to Karloff's hair. Then as it dried, he applied the hair detail, sort of raking in um, all of the lines of the hair, Designed to match the mummy of King Seti II, Karloff was then wrapped in linen bandages that had been treated in acid and scorched in an oven. Um, By this point, Karloff's face makeup had hardened and he could not speak. He could only gesture for cigarettes. Uh, No allowances were made for Karloff to relieve himself, um, which was a bit of a problem. Karloff would later say... (laughs) Uh, well, you've done a wonderful job, but you forgot to give me a fly. The job would be finished at 7 p.m., where Karloff was taken to the set and was only released from his bandage prison at 2 a.m. Later, Karloff would say of the day, Physical exhaustion was nothing compared to the nervous exhaustion I suffered, and describe the day as the most trying ordeal I have ever endured, which is Really so- saying something when you're Boris Karloff. <laughs> so he
1: he pissed his pants, right? We have to just accept that. That's what that it's, means.
2: It has to... Have, how else there's, would he have gotten through that? There's no other option. <laughs> like, it's
0: worst case scenario. I am going to pee <laughs> in this costume. That or he was just so massively dehydrated.
2: Potentially, if you could only get a cigarette. I guess he'd get a straw and if you get a cigarette in. Look, it's not an experience I'd want to go through.
0: Well, people at that time, I believe, would have picked a cigarette over a glass of water. True. <laughs> at any moment of the day.
2: But less publicized um, was the alleged collapse of Karloff on set, as the makeup also cut off his oxygen. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, uh, Bramwell Fletcher, Laurent Leslie Howard, would later tell Karloff historian Gordon Shriver, he came on after being in the makeup room and was popped into the coffin lying against the wall, and he fell face out. Everybody was very concerned and they sent the studio doctor. He said, well, you damn fools, this fellow, he's not breathing. You've got him all taped up. The man has to breathe through his skin as well as his nose. They brought him around and I was able to suggest that they split the back of the surgical bandages they put around him. Karloff himself never mentioned the collapse, which is pretty intense. I think think that would be enough for me. I'd be like, cool, you've finish this film without me. But he physically couldn't
1: walk off no, set. No,
2: he's, he's
0: trapped. Just <laughs> stuck, like hobbling. And it's really am- amazing to marvel at how long it took the Screen Actors Guild to actually come into fruition when these are the working conditions that people are putting up with. And it's like, ah, it's okay, it's better than... But one question though, if they hadn't been able to revive him, and this quickly turned into like a Buddy Epson, Wizard of Oz <laughs> situation where they had to replace him, who do you think should have played the role? Gary Cooper. That... Makes sense and also makes very little sense at the same time. So I like it. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I think it would be, like, he's tall interesting if we played it straight. Because he's tall. But, like, he also has, a, like, the bone structure that to get away with looking like a hollowed out mummy.
0: Reanimated corpse, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, And I think it would be really funny to cover up his face in that makeup.
0: Well, Karloff is just, he occupies such a very specific, like, physical space, Like, again, like you've said, Gary Cooper, uh, Colin Clive. There's only a couple people who have that, like, that bearing. Charles Farrell. But with that high-pitched whistle voice, that would be very funny, I think. Um, (laughs) The Shambling Corpse of John Gilbert's career. There are a lot of things that could have been happening at this point in time. I don't know. I mean, Um, you could also go opposite and, like, make him quite short. You can make him into six-year-old Mickey Rooney. Yeah, you could easily. Twelve. How old is Ronk at this point? Twelve-year-old Mickey Rooney.
2: (laughs) Yeah, twelve-year-old Ronk just... Smoking a cigarette because that's all he can do in his bandages. (laughs) But yeah, uh, thankfully his makeup for the rest of the film was less intense, uh, included uh, a painted-on cotton mask that created the shriveled face look that we see in that iconic close-up. It only took an hour every morning to be put on, but it had to be melted off his face every evening. So Pierce's work on The Mummy is generally very revered, so much so that the old Hollywood filmograph journal voted him the winner of a trophy um karloff himself would present the award the trophy was lo- thought lost after pierce's death in 1968 however when a sink was removed from an old makeup studio at universal it was discovered wedged under the sink <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> just for it's- safekeeping i guess <laughs> you know it's so funny because there's some people who are like they have that moment where it's like that i might be making up when Barbara Streisand is holding that like best director trophy and she's like, "Can I hold it for a second? cuz obviously, you know, having lost for Yentl. And then there are other people who are like, "I'm just going to shove this shit under a sink. I don't care. Doesn't mean anything." Like
2: to George me. C. Scott.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Or like like a, that story I've told like multiple times at this point where my mom was over at someone's house and their grandfather had been using his as like a doorstop, his Oscar for sound something, sound design. I mean, or
2: what else what else do you use it for? It's just going to get dusty. Excellent yeah, point. Explained. That's what we're
1: going to do with our webby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what does... I don't even know what a webby looks like. What does a webby look like?
1: Is there such thing as a webby? Is it also a naked man? Up?
0: I think there's a web... Yeah, there, there's there, the there, webby awards. Yeah, the webby awards. But I don't know if you get a physical... You know, again, is it also... Um, let's see. Is it
2: like a big W?
0: Webby... Oh, no, it's
2: like a... It's a spring. It's like a coiled spring.
0: I don't oh. know why that would be. Oh, that okay. sucks. It kind of looks a little bit like... um it's it's unwholesome. I don't I don't approve of it.
1: I don't want one of those. It's that mascot that the Homer made for the Olympics.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay, why would
2: anyone want one of those? Well, I'm glad we're not getting one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> why would anyone want them? Here.
2: Wow, an award statue. Uh, oh, it's a Grammy. Jack Pierce himself is somewhat of a slippery character. He started at Universal as a bit player and an assistant cameraman. That's like, you know, that's a good slash to have. <laughs> but his it was his experience um in movie makeup and his striking ape guys for the 1926 film the monkey talks which won him the title of chief of studio makeup so i mean you could just fucking get any kind of job at universal at this point
0: i guess you can't drop a film title like the monkey talks and (laughs) not elaborate the monkey talks fano a member of a french traveling circus dresses up as a talking chimpanzee to make money okay olive borden jock Lerner. Don Alvarado, Malcolm Waite, Raymond Hitchcock, Ted McNamara. Okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. IMDb has a slightly more uh, comprehensive uh, description. Okay. A bankrupt circus act... Stop telling me to download the IMDb app. I won't do it. A bankrupt circus act plans to revive its fortunes by disguising a diminutive acrobat as a talking chimpanzee. Oh, when oh, the no. acrobat falls in love with a beautiful tightrope walker, things go awry. I'm going to try to... Oh... <laughs> Oh, well, he does look pretty tiny. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, it's on YouTube if we want to watch
2: it at any point, so... Uh, there's no doubt that he was a talented makeup artist, um, creating, obviously, some of the most interesting looks in cinema and the pioneering of the makeup techniques that made those looks. Uh, what is in doubt is his character. Many contradictory reports of what he was like as a person. Uh, Since his death, stuntman Gil Perkins described Pierce as a miserable old bastard. And in her 1983 autobiography, Elsa Lanchester described him as a self-proclaimed monarch, metting out wrath and intolerance by the bucketful. He said, good morning first. If I spoke first, he glared and slightly showed his upper teeth. Uh, Another actor, Virginia Christine, who played the princess Anaka in *The Mummy's Curse* also endured hours of makeup at Jack Pierce's hands. Said he elevated himself to a position of top monster maker in the business. He was a he was kind of an arrogant man, but we got along beautifully. Meanwhile, Harry Thomas, who would take up Pierce's mantle as the top monster maker in the 1950s, said he was a little feisty man that I enjoyed knowing. I respected his genius. I used to visit him over at Universal in the 1940s. On whether Pierce was bitter when Universal booted him out of the studio in 1947, I mean, I don't know how he could not be, Uh, Thomas said, "'Yes, he was kind of bitter. I believe his pride was hurt, and I don't know whether or not he resented the fact that Bud Westmore went in there and took his place.'" I believe that Universal mentioned that he was getting older and they wanted somebody who could work faster and do prosthetics. That was their excuse. I don't think anybody's ever compared with what he did. Universal was very, very ungrateful in doing this to a man whose pictures all made a lot of money. Um which I mean that's just fucking what Universal did. That's to just everybody.
0: That's, that's the studio. That's that's the entertainment. That's Hollywood. That's the film. That's industry Hollywood,
2: gosh. baby. Um but also particularly Universal. Mm-hmm. This is, like, just look at what they did to James Whale. So,
0: Well, and you also have to remember that that would be after the, um, right, uh, if I got my year right, that would be after the board coup um, that kicks out the Lemleys and all of their, you know, preferred filmmakers. You know, a lot of people end up leaving Universal at that point in time. I don't know. It was it was a it was a weird transition moment for the studio, and then it never really. I don't think it well definitely never regains artistically, you know, um, no its status, but it definitely commercially made a lot more money after that. <laughs> it's a trade off, you know. Sometimes you got to make lots of movies where Charlton Heston runs away from earthquakes.
2: They were right to do it. As much as I fucking despise Charlton Heston, I will watch his crazy fucking movies. So
0: I don't think there's any studio that to me. Has these eras that are so completely like irreconcilable in my mind as like the Lemley era universal and then the like Rock Hudson universal of the nineteen fifties. Like I don't like, you know what I mean. Like it, like it might as well be two completely different places. I mean, I mean, it basically was. Yeah, they got rid of everybody. So. You know, I don't know. It's 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 very weird. There's no, you can't really, like, well, oftentimes it's like you can at least feel um, a common thread. Like, in a weird way, I feel like even after the merger with 20th Century, there's still a little bit of that Fox ethos, you know what I mean, in 20th Century Fox pictures. But Universal, there's just, like, there's, yeah, there's, like, there's no real common thread. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Cutting analysis. Trenchant. Inspiring. That's what they'll play when we win a Webby. <laughs> So
2: in terms of casting, uh, as I said earlier, Carl Lemley was pretty set on this being the next film for Karloff and it was written uh, with him in mind. Karloff was relatively new property for Universal and after the runaway success of Frankenstein, they were very keen to capitalise on his popularity. He was billed as Karloff the Uncanny for this film, adding to his sense of mistake – he was the first star since Garbo that could get away with the single name as his credit. Um, his character in The Mummy is quite a departure from his previous character in Frankenstein. Ardeth Bay is well-spoken and menacing uh, with a single driving purpose. Um, in 1932, uh, before he made this movie, Karloff told columnist Harrison Carroll, I have been lucky and have received splendid handling. My main concern now is to do good work in my future. I believe universal plans give me a variety of roles. I understand, however, that I am not to be continuously distorted by makeup as in Frankenstein. I mean, some wishful thinking on his part there. It's
0: <laughs> like Pat O'Brien saying, I trust that they'll stop casting me as a priest. You know, it's not going to happen. <laughs>
2: I mean, at least in The Mummy, though, there are, like, in those flashback scenes, he does a little bit, like, of the the romance acting, which he probably would not have gotten to do before. But, yeah, he's still the freak in this movie, so I'm sorry for that, Boris. Um In terms of our leading lady, uh, Zita Johan, at the beginning of the production of this, there was some attempt to... Build separation between this, uh, and Dracula and Frankenstein. Universal needed quite a different female lead to Helen Chandler or Gloria Stewart. Baldiston, Blandiston? I can't remember what I said earlier. Anyway, uh, wrote for the heroine, uh, a dark girl of Egyptian appearance is essential. She should approximate the bust of Nefertiti in the Berlin Museum. Uh, I mean, why they didn't cast an actual Egyptian is clear to everyone at this point. It's because they were racist.
0: Well, um, I mean, and also, to be fair, if they wanted someone who accurately comes across as being a reanimated corpse, Helen Chandler would have been very good casting. <laughs> One of the worst actors, really an exceptionally bad actress and i will never get it i will never get it recently when uh, ramon navarro had a tcm summer under the stars day in august and they were playing daybreak um with the two of them and this is like again really we're getting towards the end of ramon's run in hollywood and you know starting to pack on the pounds and stuff but he still it is so the effervescence and and the, the warmth and like that that just the genuine star power. And then it's literally like watching, it's it, its devastating. It's like top 10 anime betrayals, watching someone as charismatic and and just absolutely adored by the camera as Ramon Navarro interacting with someone who literally is like boiled wool, like Helen Chandler. I just I don't get it at all. Zita, uh, how do you pronounce her name? Zita? Johan. Zita Johan's not, not, not great in this movie. Um, She's perfectly serviceable, you know. Um, yeah, she's
2: fine. I mean, I think it's she's she looks really the part. just a foil for Carlo. Yeah,
0: I mean, she's not really there to do any much except for you know collapse and make David Manners look masculine. So
2: instead uh, of going with you know Helen Chandler or any of those, they initially suggested Catherine Hepburn. Wow, um, imagine <laughs> that's a concept. Um, but. They found their heroine in Hungarian-born Broadway actress Sita Johan. Uh, She was initially hesitant as she abhorred the movie, saying, I had more respect for the sex workers, that's not what she said, on 42nd Street and 8th Avenue than I did for the stars in Hollywood. Holy shit. (laughs) Um, So she was not particularly drawn to the story of the mummy either um, and only did it Um, as she'd been signed with Universal to star in an Indian love story, Laughing Boy, it was titled, which the studio cancelled, which later MGM would
0: produce. With Ramon Navarro.
2: Yep, and she owed them a movie. She later claimed she only worked in Hollywood at all to support her then-husband, John Hausman, Hausman's mother, and, as she later realised, Hausman's male lover. Um, So... (laughs) really a lot happening in her life
0: you know i okay apart apart from all of that which is a lot to take in i'm not i'm not gonna lie you know it's a shame actually that Catherine hepburn obviously would have been absolutely bonkers balls to the walls casting (laughs) but um hepburn actually and and manners are like a really good screen combo in bill of divorcement you know and she it probably credited, would have
2: been a bit more like believable.
0: It would, have, yeah. She credited him with um, kind of introducing her to like the with Hollywood the expectations of screen acting and the way that the whole you know the way that that particular thing worked as opposed to stage acting. So there was a little bit of a you know bond there, and she liked him a lot. But that would have been obviously it would have been crazy well now I can't I can't stop thinking about it so can you imagine okay at the end when she's like I am a priestess of ice I mean that's not what (laughs) sounds like that's not what Catherine Hepburn sounds like I don't know who that was supposed to be um but (laughs) Reba McIntyre the only thing is
2: though like with Catherine Hepburn and Boris Karloff being in the same shot it just would be simply too much cheekbone in one
0: shot that's a really good point yeah no
2: like, they How? wouldn't even, like, be able to have their faces close together. They might start a fire. Uh, Zita Johan in Hazel, she was suited to the part because she was a heavy believer in the power of mysticism and in reincarnation. Uh, and she got along well with Boris Karloff, saying that Boris was really, truly a great gentleman. He minded his own business and was very seclusive, very good, very kind, and very nice. There was in Karloff a hidden sorrow that I sensed and respected. A deep, deep thing. Still, whatever that may have been, there was a true respect between us as actors. He was a marvellous person. On the other hand, she and director Carl Frund did not get along. Uh, there are several rumours of mistreatment of Johannes at the hands of Frund um, including her descriptions of him as a huge monster. According to Johann Freund was determined to cast her as a scapegoat in case his foray into directing ended in failure, casting her as a difficult leading lady while pushing her to extremes in terms of directing. Johan remembered proudly that it took four weeks for me to pass out, which I don't know how that works when it was filmed in three weeks, but (laughs) there's many different like conflicting sources on this. I've tried my best. It was during the scene where Imhotep uh, shows her the pool of life, as Karloff reveals her past lives to her, that where she fainted and nearly fell into the pool. So this is from her own recollection. Late Saturday night, exhausted, I fainted in the middle of a scene with Boris Karloff. I was out for an hour, dead. The crew, generally friendly and this time again on my side, gathered beside me. What that son of a bitch has done to her, I heard. My guardian angel was very busy. Another story, saved for the Christian martyr um, scene, which is something that's cut from the original film, because in that pool... Uh, She's supposed to see many of her past lives, which is why in the opening credits there's uh, someone credited as the Saxon warrior that you don't actually see in the film. Uh, It was just all of these, you know, reincarnations of her across the ages, but for this scene... She's meant to be said, um, fed to some lions. And so they saved shooting this for the last day of filming because they were like, we've already got her other scenes. And if anything happens. Oh my God. Then we're sweet. Um, (laughs) so Johan later recalls, I rested on Sunday. Monday morning was at Universal on time and there were lions. They had this great big enormous area outside on the back lot and everybody was protected. Frund was in a special cage all his own, a very large one. <laughs> the cameraman was safe. The whole crew was safe. No cage for me. I was guided into the huge gate leading to three enormous lions. I took a deep breath praying to the Holy Spirit and to my guardian angel who were already with me. Look, I get paid, I'm going in, I don't care. What difference? Was all I could say. The gate was opened. I went in. That I remember. The lions were indifferent. My lack of sex appeal, perhaps. Those lions saw no fear in me. Just exhausted bones. They must have figured who needs them. Johan also claims that the large part of the reason why her reincarnation scenes were cut from the final film was for two reasons. Uh, number one, that she'd snubbed uh, Lemley the Younger when she asked him not to pick up her contract. She was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And two, they had to protect Karloff, suggesting that they were afraid she would outshine him, which <sighs> I think is probably a little bit of a polish from Johan, uh, <laughs> given how just effective Karloff is the entire time compared to her performance uh and also the fact that basically everybody was in love with Karloff from the studio to the audience so I'd be interested
1: to know why that was cut for real because it certainly doesn't seem to have been for time like it's only like yeah, it's 73 a 73 movie. <laughs> yeah that's interesting
0: I don't know they probably maybe they couldn't get the lines to um look menacing enough and they didn't have any barbed wire to shut up their ass or whatever they used to do <laughs> <laughs> to get wild animal. I hate... It. That's really one of the really hard things to watch. In addition to like all the human rights abuses but the animal stuff is always like yeah. in these movies like, oh god, I don't want to think about
2: um, so Johan would only act in a handful of films in the 30s before she would return to the stage. She would divorce her husband and then two more husbands, uh, and devote her later years to teaching acting. Uh, for his part, Karloff seemed pretty disturbed by Johan's treatment at the hands of Frund and along with his own treatment and that of fellow horror titan Bela Lugosi would then lead to both of them and 17 others Beginning the Screen Actors Guild in Karloff's garage. So we love a unionist, which I mean, after after doing all that, I don't know how you can not start a union.
0: Well, yeah. If anyone had a legitimate gripe about um, really anything, it would be Boris Karloff. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and Bella Lugosi, like
0: uh, Bella Lugosi roller skates anyone. in on his roller skates. <laughs> That's my favorite Bella Lugosi story. Bella Lugosi would just roller skate around LA on his roller skates. Can you imagine he probably way better than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I think he definitely would, was better than Todd, but um, I like the <laughs> idea of just you're just buying shoes or some shit, and Bella goes, zooming by, got a blast on his roller skates. And the Screen Actors Guild stuff is interesting to me because there's a uh, at least a couple of actors who are really into that unionizing at that moment in time, and then of course become like massive reactionaries as time goes on. So that's always interesting to me. Um, I find it very weird, maybe. I I guess a part of it is just, that's what money does to people. But I find it very strange, the idea of being like, you're going to risk your career at a moment when there's so much pressure not to form anything resembling a guild. And then later on, you're going to be... I don't, I don't have a formulated thought here, but I'm talking about Jimmy Cagney. I just find it—I find it very odd. I'm like, that's a, that's kind of a, a strange stretch of behavior. But I mean, I guess Reagan was also the president of a union, so that's a classic example. Yeah, I wasn't a fan I, I of like other like unions. There's something
2: there's something with especially Reagan. I feel like his stewardship of the Screen Actors Guild was purely from a very selfish point of view, which is not. Which runs contradictory to what a union is. I also think that he lacked the empathy to understand that hey, other workers should have rights too, like the air traffic control union.
0: Yeah, or you know the the farm workers union when he was governor of California or any of that. Yeah, I think Reagan particularly is interesting because um, obviously it's 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 kind of a biased perspective because he just he hated the man. But Dana Anders did make a good point when <laughs> Dana believed that Reagan became president of the Screen Actors Guild because this was like he was his training ground for for politics. it was his training ground for elected office you know, and this was his way of starting to establish his little you know fiefdom and uh, all that work that went into that, the crafting of speeches, the how to how to run meetings, how to campaign effectively all of that you know comes from Reagan's tenure over at the Screen Actors Guild and then it's just gonna Result in the overthrow of a lot of governments in Central America. It's a very strange. <laughs> it's a. You know, Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it, as the pussycat dolls said. <laughs> Words of wisdom. Well, they were full of wisdom, weren't they? <laughs> they were. They really were. Not to always talk about David Manners, but I do think it's funny that Zita, Zita Johan's like very much into this weird mystical stuff, because so is David Manners, because he ends up leaving the movies to go become like um, a hermit in the desert, out near like Apple Valley or whatever, doing yoga in the sand. So I think that's a very funny um, – I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. I feel
2: like a lot of them were just – it was the, the thing at the – early 20th century, people were just really fucking into it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, L.A. was also uh, a, a center of uh, theosophy and a lot of, other, which I'm absolutely mispronouncing, but again, I went to public school, um, and a number of other spiritualist movements. L.A. was very much a center of a lot of that, and then Southern California I and mean, it in still is. It's It yeah. absolutely still is, but at one point, yeah, a lot of the kind of alternative uh, newspapers, as it were, of the day were based in, in LA and in Hollywood specifically, it had a very uh, kind of strong hold over the area, and then it ends up kind of moving after a while. And like at one point, in up in Ventura County becomes kind of the center of it. But yeah, it was Hollywood at that point in time, and so a lot of people were involved in a lot of very weird shit in the film industry. Not to describe any sort of you know, I'm not gonna get canceled over that, but. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> me describing people to converting to Buddhism and stuff as weird shit. No, there was just definitely a, a kind of a, and it plays well, I think, into the films of this period where there is kind of that. Well, I don't know. So much of Art Deco and so much of that whole aesthetic is about this, you know, kind of fascination with with Africana and with the Middle East and all of that, you know, with, with with Egypt, there's that very strong visual, um, identification, that iconography. And a lot of that is the architecture and the history of Los Angeles. And a lot of it is what you end up seeing at the studios. And a lot of it is the fashion of the time that you end up seeing in the movies and on movie stars in their day-to-day life. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a weird moment where there's yeah, this certain fascination with like Eastern mysticism that's playing a really strong role in kind of the culture of Hollywood at the moment. I wonder if it had anything to do with Lionel Atwill's um, orgies though. <laughs> don't know about that.
2: Could do. I mean it, we don't know what he They was could into. have been
0: doing some vampire stuff, some some blood drinking. I don't know. That'd have be been really cool.
2: I don't wanna really don't want to think about it. <laughs> so for his part, Bramwell Fletcher, who is our low rent Leslie Howard, was really quite loath to be remembered, um, primarily for his role in the mummy. I mean, luckily for him, but almost ironically, he would go on to have his career defined by his part in The Man Who Laughed, which is, I mean, that's who you were in this movie as well.
0: (laughs) He's only in this movie for like six minutes. Yeah, I mean,
2: how little do you think of your own career? I mean, considering none of us really know who he is, perhaps he was right to think the way that he did about his career and how he would be remembered, but anyway. For their parts, David Manners and Edward Van Sloan uh, were basically, a, you know, copy-pasting their performances from Dracula into this movie. I think that's fair to say, except with um, some more pressed pants.
0: Got to look fresh. Got to keep a fresh fit. The drip. He
2: did yoga in those pants.
0: Also, he looks very at home, which I think is very funny because I'm like, it's got to be like a hot. I mean, as someone who has been in the desert before, little known fact, I'm like, it looks very hot outside when they're filming, but um, he looks like he's not breaking a sweat. So good for him.
2: Uh, So the film would end up costing $196,000, significantly less than Dracula or Frankenstein. However, this does not include what Universal spent on publicity for this film. Much like the last film we covered, there were many wacky ideas in terms of promotion, aside from the many differently sized posters of Karloff the Uncanny. Um, which are actually quite famous, those mummy posters, including one that sold for like a record amount quite recently, like an original mummy poster. There was a press book that gave hints to exhibitors on how they could increase business. For- oh, oh, I know one of these. Can I say it? Mm-hmm. Okay, um,
1: you were supposed to get a big cage in your theatre and put a cutout of David Manners inside.
0: <laughs> Where he belongs. Like, he's a cage... <laughs> um the raw sex appeal you gotta keep him you gotta keep him locked up or he's gonna he's gonna ravish ravish your female audience
2: yeah I guess or he's just gonna teach you how to do a sun salutation (laughs) Um, so the ideas in this press book ranged from casket-shaped hangers for a few cents to elaborate speaking mummies that would answer questions in the foyer. Almost all of these gimmicks would feature Karloff in his full makeup in some form, uh, which was a slight misrepresentation of how he actually appears in the film. Carl the Younger would go all in with his weekly column writing, This is the story of magic and mystery and your pulses will pound as you will watch it. Carl of the Uncanny creates a character that adds so much to his laurels that I can say he stands utterly alone in his glory. So some a big ups there from Carl Jr.
0: <laughs> I was a genius for commissioning this screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. I wonder who did this. They were very smart to do this. Um, the film was a Success, with the New York Times noting that there is a place for a national bogeyman in the scheme of things, was fulsomely demonstrated yesterday by the crowds that clicked past the box office. Andre Senwald from the New York Times wrote, For purposes of terror, there are two scenes in The Mummy that are weird enough in all conscience. In the first, the mummy comes alive and a young archaeologist, going quite mad, laughs in a way that raises the hair on the scalp. (laughs)
0: I've never okay. I'm sorry. I, I hate to interrupt again, but I've never heard that description. You know, like people say, like the hair on the back of your neck, but just visualizing yeah, just the hair on your scalp. scalp. Like I've still well, have seen like you know, obviously like the Harold Lloyd. You know what I mean, like hair. But just the phrase, mm. it will raise the hair on your scalp. Is just a funny. Well,
2: maybe this guy didn't have a lot of hair.
0: Maybe he was a bald bitch and <laughs> <good for him. laughs>
2: in the second Imhotep is embalmed alive, and that moment when the tape is drawn across the man's mouth and nose, leaving only his wild eyes staring out of the coffin, is one of decided horror. An LA Times critic wrote, Surely the mantle of the late Lon Chaney will eventually fall upon the actor Karloff, whose portrayal of an unholy thing in this film, aided by magnificent makeup, establishes him as not just a good character actor, but a finished character star. Karloff himself would be more modest about this, uh, saying there will only be one Lon Chaney because he understood so well that souls of afflicted people... None of us can do what Cheney did because none of us feels it just as he did. Naturally, there are a few topics for critique when it comes to The Mummy, which I'm sure by now everyone is thinking, didn't Amelia go on ad nauseum about colonialism in her King Kong episode? Well, too bad we're doing it again. Um, (laughs) I think it's something that's important to confront in any movie or else how do we own our past, particularly the worst aspects of it. So clearly a lot of the... Mummy's foundational story is built out of this 20th century white imperialist view of Egypt. Uh, A lot of the so-called Egyptologists working at the time of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb were rich, white, and had no qualms about exploiting contemporary Egyptians and stealing their treasures. Blenderson's script is full of disparaging language surrounding contemporary Egyptians and Islam. Um, and only a few of them make it across into the film's final form but there's the one line where helen is looking out over modern cairo and is like i wish we could go back to classical egypt
0: is there a view like this in
1: all the world helen
2: the real egypt are we really in this dreadful modern cairo And it's like, why in Christ's name would you want to go back to ancient Egypt? (laughs) So the film has been rightfully accused of othering Egyptian culture and elevating Western culture um, and thinking above all else. And it also disparaged the contemporary state of of an Islamic country in favour of praising the ancient world. And we can see this through both the script and the cast, with no Egyptians being cast and the only person of colour in the cast being Noble Johnson in a non-speaking role. So here's what they refer to as the nubian
0: and the nubians are also referred to um i I can't remember the exact phrasing but it's basically implied that the nubians are like that um that karloff has through his you know powers um reduced the nubians to their like natural state as a race of slaves which is not good i don't think there is um an egyptian actor in hollywood at this point uh, until Alex Darcy comes over I think later in the 30s from England I don't think there's any one of them to that yeah, point yeah I don't think yeah. we do but I, mean- I mean we've had like fake Egyptians obviously they're always fake Egyptians you know I think Theodore Barrow you know uh, the equivalent of like the Ricardo Cortez thing like the fake the fake Latin that was kind of a thing where um, actors were touted as having some sort of Exotic background of that type but I don't I don't think there's anyone apart from yeah apart from Alex Darcy, but that's obviously not until later on in the 30s because I think at that point he's still making mm-hmm. films in England it's interesting yeah and I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't have helped no and it wouldn't have helped to... either it's also not a way to redeem <laughs> yeah. a racist script by just you know by casting people of the correct uh, race or ethnicity in it and doesn't manage to elevate no. it there's also a really um jarring moment when David Manners says something about how it is shitty and lame that the british have to display the artifacts that they're finding um in the museum in cairo as opposed to yeah. shipping them back to the british museum yeah
2: i think it's a dirty trick This cairo museum keeping everything we found that was the contract the british museum works for the cause of science not for loot yes that is i mean is i'm mean, it's true to life of what the actual egyptologists would have mm-hmm. been thinking at the time when they were excavating the tomb of Tutankhamun, but it doesn't make it any more right. Um, and it plays into a lot of that, you know, that white colonial sort of explorer vibe that we talked about in King Kong. They just, they came in, they're just like, well, we're the superior culture, we're the superior, you know, scientists. So it's our right to displace these things and display them as artifacts in, you know, the British Museum. Whatever I finds, I keeps. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that that is what they thought and that that was wrong. Carl Johnson uh, says, while the film is ostensibly a reification of the colonial British hegemony, it displaces itself and presents a subverted and subversive message Uh, And while the film depicts the white British archaeologists never questioning their right to be there and excavate the remains or questions the fact that they believe their culture is the superior one, the film goes away to subvert these assumptions as in the end they are bested by the mummy. The mummy is stronger than the British Empire, which I don't know. It's giving them a lot of credit that I don't think they they rightfully deserve because in the end they aren't bested by the mummy. I mean, some of them are killed by the mummy, but at the end of the day, it's the statue of Isis that kills the mummy. It's an interesting thought to think about retrospectively, but it's definitely not something that the filmmakers or the scriptwriter even thought about putting in there. They just wanted a movie about a mummy. But on a wider scale, um, the mummy is a standout of the early Universal horrors as the romantic angle makes Imhotep far more sympathetic than a character like Dracula, the way Imhotep takes on his victims is also far removed from him um, and also sort of displaces that violence further away from him, which makes it easier for the audience to identify the, with his attempts to convince Helen that they are meant to be. Um, for me, I, I can't get behind David Menace and Zita Johan because that's just – it doesn't make sense to me. It's just simply not – there's nothing there. But then again, I don't know if the story between her and Karloff is any more compelling either. But I think on his own, Karloff is... There's definitely something there. Whether it was just the sadness that Zidio had pointed out or not. I mean, there's something going on.
0: Um, a number of years ago, I made an edit of the movie Death Takes a Holiday with Frederick March um, and set it to Vacation by the Go-Go's. And... <laughs> <laughs> There's a scene in Death Takes a Holiday that I used in this in this video where Frederick March is like in like a speedboat and it's like hopping along this lake and it's like, like <laughs> Vacation And so I think that this movie should have been like you said, you know what I mean? we don't know what Amotep's been doing between um like the nineteen twenty one and the nineteen thirty two. The whole movie should have just been him on a speedboat, sent to vacation honestly, by the Gogos.
2: Honestly, it should have just been him like doing like whatever he wanted to do for 10 years because like what the hell else was he doing just like imagine, what?
0: imagine the passport problems he would have had you know <laughs> all that kind of super mundane stuff i want to see a movie for once like a vampire movie or something that really delves into the problem of you know i'm oh, sorry i don't have a copy of my birth certificate i was born in 1431 you know i want to see or like
2: them going to the dmv trying to get the driver's license but they can't get a photo taken. Exactly. Because they're a vampire.
0: Exactly. You know, when will, when will they give us the mundane treatment that we want? And so I think, I think the mummy, I think this movie would be a way better movie if that's what it was about.
2: Yes. I I would have to agree if, if this movie was just like, I don't know, Boris Karloff in the mummy makeup doing like dirty rotten scoundrels or something. That would (laughs) have been,
0: that would have been very good. Honestly, like we watched this movie in um, a class I took once on um, the ancient world in film. And everyone was like, "Man, this movie sucks." And I, it's it's hard to defend because honestly, it does it does kind of suck. Um, Karloff's great, and visually there are some really striking moments. But for the most part, it's 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 a bit of a, it's a snoozer. It's a bit of a stinker. It's probably my least favorite Universal horror of that period of that cl- of that uh, classic Universal monster arc. You know, where it's just like one hit after another. This one is just like way at the bottom of my list.
2: Yeah, I, I don't I don't think you're alone in, in thinking that. I mean in fairness I did only pick this one so I could talk about the remake but
0: <laughs> <laughs> which talk about a movie that is at the top of my list and that is
2: like I'll get to it later but like what a perfect movie but yeah as you say it is it is sort of the the middle unwanted child of the universal canon I I don't think it's really stand out in many ways apart from Yes, I think Karloff is the redeeming feature of this movie and I think the shots of him, you know, doing his menacing thing are extremely arresting and beautiful. I think it's it's quite interesting to compare it to something like Dracula and say, ah, I see without a foundational text they're kind of screwed. Maybe they weren't as good as they thought they were.
0: And, and Dracula even – because I, I don't think – another controversial take – I don't think Todd Browning was as good of a director as James Whale. But that's also not a controversial take because if you think he was, then you just – I don't know, you don't have eyes, I guess. But um, Dracula, even Dracula, can be is kind of uneven. I mean, if we're going to be honest here, when Belle Lugosi's not on there screen. there there parts of it that really drag? Yeah. If there's not Dracula or Renfield, I mean, the movie really drags. Yeah that crazy bug-eating bitch. If that's not happening, then it's really, yeah. It's not, that's, the, I think, the difference between those movies, which are made by lesser directors, you know, between, like, Carl Frondon um, and uh, Todd Browning. Todd Browning still being a great director, but it, no James Whale. No one is James Whale, you know. There is not, there. those movies just don't let up. The James Whale movies. They don't quit. They don't quit. They got an ass that don't quit. And that ass is non-stop chilling action. I mean, compare, to the, compare, like, the brief impact of, like, seeing Elsa Lanchester in Bride of Frankenstein for, really, what is she on screen? Probably, like, four minutes, maybe? Compared to, like, literally anything that happens in this movie? It's crazy. Oh,
2: yeah. There's no doubt about about who the superior director is. I mean, you can clearly see that this is Carl Freen's, like, first foray into Hollywood directing.
0: Um, and it's a, I do think... Oh, go on. I would say it's, and it's a very brief career. But Mad Love is a good movie. But again, that's also something that has a has an established foundational, you know, mad love comes from something, right? Because it's already, like, hands of Orlock, So you've already got that to kind of rip off a little bit. And Peter Lorre, I watched Peter Lorre read the phone book, so. That used to be a thing for our Gen Z listeners. That used to be um, a thing where you would <laughs> you would get a book do do <laughs> on okay. your doorstep and you would open it up.
2: But yeah, I would agree, and I think also this film suffers from its weird pacing, which makes it really a bit more difficult for uh, us as a modern audience to really appreciate. And I just also think that there's a lot of novice filmmaking going on here.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's I think a lot of what I object to, because I think honestly, I'm speaking for Todd because she's not. I'm, I'm just going to assume that Todd feels the same way about this because it's like I think the three of us have a relatively re- refined sensibility when it comes to appreciating at times the glacial pacing of films from this period. I think we all can a- agree on that. But this isn't, like, it's not our, It's not even, like, as a modern viewer, I take objection to it. I just take objection to it as, like, a person who's seen a movie before. You know? <laughs> like, I don't think if I saw this movie in 1932, I'd be like, damn, this in is In general, the poppin'. modern audience,
2: like, because we can stomach some really slow 30s shit. And- yeah. I, I consider us as the outliers. We're Spider's Georg in this situation.
0: <laughs> yeah. And like when we even think it's for bad. Us, this
2: is a bit too much to, exactly. to stomach. Exactly.
0: So I think we're the canary in the coal mine. We are the, like when we think it's bad, then it definitely means that Carl Frohn. it's a good thing that he his directing career wrapped up quite, quite soon after this. So
2: despite it's, you know, being the least favoured of all their. Um, universal horrors of that time universal saw enough financial success in this to quickly capitalize on it um the mummy has no direct sequel in the same way that frankenstein does instead what followed the mummy were, was a series of films that featured a mummy named Karis. Um, beginning with The Mummy's Hand in 1940, followed by The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, and the Abbott and Costello movie, Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. Though The Mummy is different and a lot more aggressive, um, and took the mummy that we know as, the, you know, the more lumbering, bandaged, moaning, arms out in front. The Mummy's Hand specifically reuses footage from the original 1932 version of Karloff reanimating as the sort of origin for this new Karras mummy without actually crediting Karloff or Karloff being this new mummy. The mummy would appear again in the Hammer Horrors, though most of these remakes were of the original Universal, uh, the Mummy's Hand movies and that series of mummy movies. Um, So again, they were very different to the original Mummy. Finally, The Mummy, w- well, not finally, <laughs> The Mummy would be reimagined in 1999 by Stephen Summers. But I will save talking more about this for another episode because I read just a tiny smidgen of the production history of that movie and it was absolutely fucking bonkers. So um we're just going to have that as a little teaser. That's going to be a next banger. Because, oh my God, <laughs> but I'll just say now... I only did this because I wanted to talk about Brendan Fraser. And look where we are.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, we'll probably still be in lockdown next October, so no excuses. Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, according to our prime minister, international borders are opening up next month, and I simply do not believe that. But anyway. Um, Finally, in 2017, there was another version of The Mummy, which everyone might have forgotten about. Uh, This one starred Tom Cruise and was released and quickly fucking forgotten because everyone on earth believed that it was terrible and they were right to do so. Um, It was so bad in fact that it led to the cancellation of the dark universe Universal had pinned all of its hopes on Um, which is, that's pretty bad. That's an indictment but I mean if anyone can do it Tom Cruise can do it. So as for what happened to our key players after the movie Carl Papa would go on to only direct a handful of movies. He would then go on to. Pioneer the multi-camera sitcom setup for *I Love Lucy*, and would become the chief cinematographer at Desilu Productions. So he um, still had a little bit of an impact on things that we know and love. Uh, I reckon his style of directing or cinematography was definitely more suited to TV than to movies. <laughs> And finally, as we know, for Karloff, he would go on to reach even greater heights with his career both in horror and outside of it. He was also successful on the stage and on television and would continue working diligently until his death from emphysema in 1969. So clearly he should not have been having those cigarettes while bandaged up but you know what else was he going to do
1: yeah i think a lot of the fault for me falls on the script to be honest i think it would have benefited from like a longer running time or just a better script Uh, i do enjoy the movie though like i like it it's just it's i think something like you know like cat people which we just discussed it it shows that with the same running time you can do kind of like a compelling character study and i don't think the mummy succeeds at that you know the love story is the the david manners zita johan thing is it's a total failure they don't even try to flesh it out I guess it's kind of a case of style over substance and the style and Boris Karloff are enough to kind of elevate it even though it's uh you know it pales in comparison to its its peers so that
2: said I mean it's still better than anything James Wan has directed so I don't know um, now that we've met Gabriel I mean, though I've got to say yeah <laughs> I've got a credit where credit is due He really got me with Malignant. He fucking... Tiff and I watched that last weekend. He got me. I mean, the first fucking 90 minutes of that movie, Interminable. Could not fucking tell you what that movie was about. But the last, what, half an hour? Yeah, 20 minutes. Bonkers. Absolutely nuts. Completely bonkers. So thanks for that, James Wan.
0: I I just wish this movie was like a little bit more evocative um, in terms of its Egyptian setting. I think that's another weakness of the movie. You know, you don't get that, that sense of place. It honestly doesn't feel like it's take. It might as well be taking place in San Francisco. You know, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're in Egypt, especially in comparison to that great atmosphere that you have in a lot of the other Universal pictures, you know, where you truly do believe, like, in the old Dark House, that you are in, like, this sodden, like, Welsh countryside. You know what I mean? You get that... Or Bride of Frankenstein, I it's it, Superior movies. But you don't... Um, it really doesn't feel... It feels very much tacked on, you know, The Egyptian setting as in it it really could have just been like oh we're it's an exhibition at a at a museum in San Francisco and this mummy has been shipped over and now he's wreaking havoc it could have easily been that you know
2: I think I just don't think Carl Freund had enough artistic vision to be able to do that like he could do what he could do and he was good in like his cinematography because the cinematography in Metropolis is extremely good, but I just think he should have stuck to what he knew how to do. Yeah, I think when
1: I compliment the style, if I were to really investigate what I'm saying, it's more like that one Karloff close-up and the sick titles. And that's kind of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that stuff is really good, but then you get a lot of scenes in, like, drawing rooms and shit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah i do i mean it's great seeing yeah. Karloff. Karloff in any scene like especially with his you know low-cut caftan on <laughs> and you know just sort of menacing above everyone else which we did look up his height and apparently he was not that tall but then also they were saying david manners was six foot tall and that is simply not true candace please confirm
0: as a tall person i know i do believe that david manners was was actually pretty tall i think Karloff is wearing uh Lifts, mickey rooney style lifts in certain (laughs) performances yeah he's got his baby spice platforms on in frankenstein yeah so
2: i mean but the thing is like even seeing him in other like candid shots he still seems quite tall but maybe he just was always i I think he's got
0: he's got a certain he's got a tall man's presence you know he's got a certain gravitas about him it's like when i found out that uh, cappuccino is only like Five six or something. When I always thought she because when you see her on the screen, I mean she projects as being, you know, eleven feet tall. But there are certain people. There's some people who have to, who have tall. They've got they've got tall bitch energy, you know. <laughs> and Karloff I think, was like five eleven or something, which is like tall for the period. I guess it's it's fairly tall for the period. But now he he projects as being taller than he really is. Where some people project as being smaller than they really are, like like Mickey Rooney, projects as being even tinier. Than he really is in real life, like Leslie Howard. If you ask me how tall Leslie Howard is, I'd say like five six. Like I, he strikes me as being a small man, small delicate bones like a bird.
2: Yeah, that's just that's exactly what they said before they blew him up.
0: I was gonna <laughs> oh say God. that's <laughs> why he felt. That's why it was so easy to do. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think in terms of its historical importance, I mean, it's not ever going to be as important as Dracula or Frankenstein. I still think it's an interesting artifact of of the time, especially because it was so inspired by the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, I think it's quite interesting in in that was their interpretation of that event. Um, I think that's quite, for me, uh, an interesting almost primary source of the greater world's reaction to it at that point. Mm -hmm. While not accurate at all, it's still yeah interesting that that's how they interpreted it i i just think that for me what really works about this film is boris karloff but if you want to watch a boris karloff movie just watch frankenstein (laughs) well with that um thank you everybody for listening as always you can get in touch with us on our socials at basket pod on instagram and twitter should we start like Telling people we do put show notes up somewhere on our website. Yeah, um, they're linked in the
1: description of every episode. So if you want to see like web books and websites and everything we consulted,
2: which for the researched episodes, there's always quite a lot, uh, go there. Yeah, I read so many books for this. So please appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Oh, also, and sometimes if we refer to like a visual, a specific visual, oftentimes that will be linked in case it's, you know, a reference to something you're not familiar with or if you care. Probably don't care. But um, oftentimes there will be a picture of it in the show notes. So you can so you can get in on the fun. Yeah, so
2: get in touch with us on our social socials or, you know, if you like this podcast, uh, leave us a rating or a review. Um, yeah, that's it. Stay safe. Get vaccinated. Um, don't eat any horse paste. And, I mean, if you do, let us know how it goes. <laughs> so...
0: Thanks. Bye. 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 I mean, I can only think of like things that would be funny. Like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, say them. It is a comedy podcast. It, uh Well, now they're not funny now that I can I can't think of any. But uh Todd, do you have any any scintillating insights?
2: Uh, it's basically just stuff you guys have already said, but I mean, the whole point of the podcast is that we we all talk to each other, so you can just cut out some
0: <laughs> and you, pretend you say and it. just just I dub mean, in Todd anime? saying you can do
2: whatever you want. <laughs>